0: Welcome to The Darkened Hour. Welcome to another episode of The Darkened Hour. I'm your host, Adam Fitzgerald. With me today is a special guest. James Corbett is an award-winning investigative journalist who has lectured on geopolitics at the University of Groningen's Studium General and delivered presentations on open-source journalism at the French Institute for Research in Computer Science and Automation's Fossa conference at Tex-Groningen, and at Ritsmiyukyan University in Kyoto, Japan. He started the Corbett Report website in 2007 as an outlet for independent critical analysis of politics, society, history, and economics. Since then, he has written, recorded, and edited thousands of hours of audio and video media for the website, including a podcast and several regular online video series. His latest series, False Flags, The Secret History of Al Qaeda, is a three-part docu-series which details the initial and past history of the ultra-orthodox sect Al Qaeda, led by Osama bin Laden. James, thank you very much for coming on.
1: Thank you for having me on, and thank you for talking about this. As I know, you know, there aren't nearly enough people out there talking about these aspects of what uh, what happened over the past few decades. So, I, I appreciate the work that you do.
0: No, and um, you know, as I said before the recording, that it's unfortunate that we don't have more of an in-depth analysis. About the geopolitics and the uh, history of Al Qaeda in a serious setting, and you no, know, I, I, the thank you belongs to you for putting out this remarkable, fascinating series, which I'm going to um, link in the description. But um, you know, I'll start off pretty simple, James. What made you do this series to begin with?
1: I think. It was a number of things um and i can't i I can't exactly state what was that moment where i decided all right i'm going to do this documentary because as people who have followed my work for many years will know i've i've done a lot of work on 9 11 over the years 9 11 documentaries of various sorts but uh there was uh, it was during actually a rereading of uh kevin fenton's disconnecting the dots that it really started to rankle me how little of this information i had ever seen presented anywhere in the alternative media space over the past couple of decades identifiable real important information that nobody talks about and that that really started to rankle and it started to get me to think about all of the things that over the past 15 years that i've been researching this that i've accumulated along the way that i know all of these different pieces of the puzzle and the only thing that anyone ever 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 wants to talk about when you say 9 11 is them buildings sure did blow up funny Mm. um i i I think we can do better than that i think we can go beyond that and actually start to look at some of this history the geopolitics the 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 fact that as uh uh, uh, I forget which 9-11 commissioner it was but one of them said this was a 20-year conspiracy well I think he was right in a sense this wasn't a single day that happened uh, in New York and Washington this was this was a a confluence of events and factors and and characters that populate this vast story that in some senses stretch back centuries if you really want to go go that far as I do start the documentary there but really identifiably over the past few decades and um that That immense story, there are just so few people out there that are trying to express that, um, that I decided uh, I was going to put it together.
0: And, you know, I I share this uh, concern with you regarding the truth movement in regards to staying in one particular area and not expanding upon uh, the other areas, which are much more expansive in nature, but much more self-explanatory, much more detailed as to getting to certain names for certain subjects. Um... You know, you, 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 I, I have a problem with this sometimes. I, I, I always tell this to uh, people I've I invite on the show, and I'll ask you, James, um, you've been a long time, uh, even further than me, in regards to studying the aspects of September 11, 2001. And I have always uh, come across a very troublesome uh, conundrum in that if I were to reach uh, certain people in the public, where would I start with explaining 9-11? Uh, Have you ever come across this problem yourself and where would you start?
1: Um, Yeah, it uh, it, it struck me a number of times over the years that I I was listening, re-listening to a very, very, very old podcast of mine from 2007 or 2008 recently, and I was actually taken aback by how quickly and authoritatively I summarized what happened on Mm -hmm. (laughs) 9-11. And I thought to myself, you know, I couldn't do that today because I know so much more that it's actually difficult for me to 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 say this is what happened in exactly this way and this is what it was um it's the old conundrum the more you know the less you actually know and uh, so I feel the burden of that um so where do you start introducing people uh, to this mm. this type of information is is incredibly an incredibly important question because the obvious answer is of course the route that we saw the 9 11 truth movement or whatever it calls itself that's what we saw it take was the very obvious place to start Mm. hey look at these pyrotechnics that's incredible let's spend 21 years talking about nothing else other than these video this video footage of these pyrotechnics and we see where that has led which is to Mm. zero justice of any sort for anyone so i think hey, maybe instead of banging our head against that brick wall, maybe there's something else useful here. So I have concentrate, tried to concentrate on other areas. I've done a documentary on 9-11 trillions about following the money, mm. money trail of 9-11. I've talked about um, 9-11 whistleblowers. I've talked about 9-11 suspects. I've done this false flag uh, al-Qaeda series, which is not a 9-11 documentary, but obviously it features 9-11 mm. as sort of the centerpiece of the documentary. So I've tried to Come at this from different angles, if nothing else, than to sort of get people thinking about something other than the pyrotechnics of what happened that day.
0: And I tell you, the, the series itself was uh, like I, again, well, it was fantastic because uh, it definitely took some time to explain. And there are two people that I consider the ultimate authorities of uh, Al Qaeda, and that's Ann Stenersen and um, um, an author that I just come across, um, Mustafa Hamid, who wrote the book, The Arabs at War in Afghanistan, and what Ann Starrison's called Al-Qaeda in in Afghanistan. But besides that, there's very few, um, I guess, authoritative narrative regarding Al-Qaeda itself. So, you know, you start off the series by explaining the long and arduous history of British Empire rule in the Islamic nations most notably the formation of uh, Saudi Arabia as they helped to capture Najid and Hejaz under Ibn Saud in 1925 with the defeat of the Hashemites. Why was this important to tell the beginning of Al-Qaeda?
1: I think it's important to set the context of uh, the very idea that um, not intelligence agencies, I suppose, back in the day, but the precursors to that. um, At any rate, people in positions uh, in government to be able to wield um, operatives and uh, and under the table transactions and what have you have for centuries been using uh, Islamic extremism essentially as a geopolitical proxy tool and um, a very convenient tool that can be used in both ways because either, you can sort of ally yourself with this group and secretly fund them and help them along so that they can destabilize the government that you don't like in a region or you can say hey look at these islamic extremists we have to go in and get them Mm
0: -hmm. and
1: in fact as I again I'm trying to summarize centuries of history here in the first half hour or so of the documentary it's ridiculous but I do try to gesture to um specific instances of that for example the Muslim Brotherhood which um Mark Curtis uh in his book um Mm. I remember the name of the book off the top of my head but it's it is linked in the transcript along with everything else i cite but mark curtis's book uh, does a great job of detailing that for example the british under the table sort of help for the muslim brotherhood at certain stages and then using them as as sort of well this is the reason why we have to why we have to be in egypt and things like this so playing both sides of of the table this is a great game essentially that has been played for many many centuries and so we have to understand the American empire Pax Americana of the past 70, 80 years is in some ways, not a carbon copy, but at least following Mm. some of the templates that were set by the British empire.
0: I want to say the book was secret affairs.
1: That sounds exactly right. Uh,
0: British's um, British's collusion with the Islam. I think it was the name of the book. I think you actually mentioned this in the the film too. You, you, The United States' first meeting with Ibn Saud on the USS Quincy in 1945 uh, comes at the heel of the oil company Saudi Arabia in 1938. Um, And at the end of World War II, where Saudi Arabia needed a national defense for which they had none, uh, they called upon the United States. Uh, Were these some of the reasons, as well as regulating the oil market for the U.S. to begin the partnership with the Saudi kingdom, for which it had absolutely no... Uh, type of real hegemony in the region itself or any type of um, uh, commonality with a country that's so uh, different in regards to the religious aspect and the political aspect
1: yes and in fact if you watch some of the footage um, that was taken of that uh, initial meeting it is uh, is quite interesting to see essentially this this saudi ruler's first trip ever outside of the uh, the boundaries of mm. saudi arabia and off of the peninsula and it, uh, very interesting to see and uh, you can hear the stories about his entourage um uh, had to slaughter goats freshly every day for him to eat and things like this i mean again yeah very very different culture but why were they coming together um clearly there was a, a geopolitical alliance here of of convenience for both sides and as you say the uh the American military umbrella and eventual monetary rewards that come along with that was uh obviously a, a big part of the carrot there on the Saudi side of the ledger on the American side clearly obviously oil resources mm-hmm. um as I talk about in my World War One documentary um part of the what really part of what really happened in world war one was the cementing the solidifying of the idea that the modern army is going to run on oil and uh, and oil resources are the new imp- absolutely must have essential thing for not just for the economy of a modern nation state but for the national security of a nation state so um w- reflecting that that geopolitical reality i think america certainly saw um its bread being buttered in Saudi Arabia by forming an alliance sure and and propping up a a ruling family here with a convenient alliance that allowed both sides to take something out of it and uh, the Americans certainly did benefit from that relationship in a number of different ways and that morphed of course in the 1970s with the start of the petrodollar regime and um taking the the oil of course denominated in dollars sold in dollars and then recycled back through the U.S. banking system in order to keep the U.S. dollar as the core of the world reserve um, monetary system, after the delinking of the gold uh, dollar from gold and all of that, the closing of the gold window. So there's there's a lot of history that's gone under that bridge, and I think that still actually that U.S. Saudi relationship is still obviously relevant, mm. um, right up to 2022 and what's going on now. And of course, 9/11 continues to be sort of a a card that the U S could pull out at any time with regards to Saudi Arabia about, Hey, we know some, some things, some interesting things about nine 11 with regards to Saudi Arabia. And when you read between the lines of certain stories that play out, I think you start to see that there is, there's some geopolitical wrangling that goes on, um, with this delicate dance that they're doing.
0: I I, funny. I like to follow up on that if I may, uh, you bring up, uh, this dangling of the meat regarding nine 11 um i've been reading the operation encore files right. uh, regarding right. the latest releases and i'm wondering is that what you say part of the dangling of the meat so to speak?
1: I, I think so i think at any time at which they think that it is important they could suddenly declassify all of this stuff they could and more importantly actually make some sort of con, con, considered yeah. push to actually publicize it and allow lawsuits to go ahead and things of that nature Um, I think that's the sort of Damocles that hangs over the Saudi um, royal family at this point. And one of the reasons why I think they have not stepped fully away from the U.S. Mm. umbrella yet. Um, They have been inching closer towards Russia and China and some of these other states, but they still, I think, have not severed alliance altogether with the United States. And that might be one of the reasons for it. Is because the U.S. Mm. absolutely could pull that card out when and if they want to.
0: You know, you took care to mention in the film how Arab nationalism which was uh, led by Egyptian President Gamal Abdel Nasser, was seen as a regional threat to the West. Can you explain why the United States was threatened by Arab nationalism?
1: I think uh, this, again, goes back to the British Empire Mm. template, if you will, for ruling, um, which was always about divide and rule. And um, I can't remember off the top of my head which... Let's see if I can find it um, quickly. Uh, uh, one of the, uh, the, uh, the old rulers, uh, the British viceroys of India had specifically said that one of the, the future threats to um, British rule in the region could be the forming of if these if these people that we're training and we're giving this you know western education and everything if they start getting western ideas of nationhood and independence and and uh you know modern liberalism or whatever you want to call it well then they might start applying that and start you know demanding their own rule and things like this this might be the biggest threat to our rule over these people so we have to keep them essentially divided and conquered and play up um religious extremism and play up divides um between people and that's i think the threat that um pan-arab nationalism under people like nasser presented at that time was this idea that well what if these what if this gigantic and incredibly economically influential because of the geo the the geopolitically sensitive resources that we were just talking about what if these people started nationalizing their resources and putting this into their own countries and trying to build up their own populations and banding together against western influence that i mean that was clearly a threat um so i think once again it's the divide and rule um idea and one way that has always worked to to um keep populations divided is to gin up um religious extremism on on multiple sides and making sure that those groups are at war with each other as much as possible
0: yeah because you mentioned this in in the film part one i want to say um, where the British had uh, somehow, like I, I do use the term, but worked with the Muslim Brotherhood in regards to upending or fighting against the, uh, the secular Arab nationalists of the day. But they also, at the same time, under um, Hassan al-Banna, didn't want any influence of the British in the region as well. But it's almost like, uh, yeah, it's it's a weird game.
1: Why would they support people who Hmm. were actively against them? Hmm. But for convenient alliance for a few years and then to turn their back and stab them in the back on it. And it's it's a bizarre story. But as I say that, I think that Mark Curtis book really explained it quite well.
0: Sure. And, you know, we saw this in a revisitation in 1979 anyway, in in which um, I'm going to talk about here, because 1979 was a key year. Uh, with the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan, the Grand Mosque seizure in Saudi Arabia and the Iranian revolution against the Western Bakshar, Reverend Pavlavi, that you mentioned so brilliantly in the uh, in the film. This tended to give rise to the Islamic fundamentalists, whose rise began with the Saudi oil boom of the 70s, backed by the Gulf dollar and the Wahhabi ideology of Saudi Arabia, and the end of Arab nationalism. And of course, uh, months later with the assassination of the Egyptian president. Uh, and War From here, we see two main Islamic fundamentalist groups uh, that had been growing in Egypt and as the Egyptian Islamic Jihad and Gemma Islamiyah and later on we saw Al Qaeda, both born out of the death throes of Arab nationalism and backed by the Wahhabi ideology which all began at the precept of U.S. interventionalism. Was this the beginning of a new enemy to replace the Cold War enemy in the Soviet Union?
1: Uh, in retrospect, it certainly was. Uh, the question is, who knew that at that time? Yes. Um and mm-hmm. I'm not sure. Uh, I'm, I'm not sure that my my thesis would be that this was necessarily that this was all planned out thirty years in right. advance. Um, I think that the the people who are in positions to be able to um, to influence media coverage of things and to and to gin up a crisis here and there are probably not thinking 30 years ahead oh this this group is going to be able to we're going to be able to use them but sort of anything that's on the table and in play that's convenient okay well maybe we can use this group um which might go some ways towards explaining i mean for example again if if 9-11 was a completely 100% synthetic event and Osama bin Laden is a character, right. you know, with wearing a fake beard and it's not real or nothing is real, then why wouldn't they have just synthetically created Iraqi hijackers and right. given them right. Iraqi passports so that they we could just go directly to Saddam Hussein, why do this circuitous thing? Again, it's the the most plausible explanation is that this group existed. These people were part of what they believed to be this plot and that plot got hijacked to use that word right. and essentially certain doors opened at certain times and if you're in that plot and going forward and you're doing it because you believe that i'm doing it for this purpose and you happen to get through this border or this thing happens to go right for you are you going to stop and question it or are you just going to go with it hey right. good we're succeeding um all all it takes is the right people in the right positions at the right time to open the right door and a plot can go ahead and um, end up developing into something else. So that's the way I look at things like this, like the creation of uh, Egyptian Islamic Jihad and groups like this. Again, I don't think necessarily this was being done, puppeteered by Mm -hmm. some group at the top. It's just that, hey, this is a convenient vehicle through which perhaps we can fit this particular foreign policy agenda.
0: Right, this is something that I I tend to believe is that uh, you have groups like this that are willing to do the dirty work. And you can, all you have to do is make sure that the dirty work is successful, and you take care, of, you get the benefits of the dirty work. Uh, that's something that I've always believed. Um, and in regard, by the way, you, you brought up an interesting point about why not just make it a whole synthetic event. There's a part, one part of 9-11 I like to revisit, and, uh, get your thoughts. Um, one fringe conspiracy is that uh, the, the passport that was found in New York that belonged to Satama Suskami. Um, and people say, well, they just planted that passport. And I said, well, why didn't they make it an Iraqi passport? Why didn't they make him an Iraqi? Because you tried to tie an all-in with Iraq. And it's, I always get this uh, very vague response or something like that. Um,
1: yeah, but here's, here's the real trivia on that. Who mm. found the passport? Well, who was it given to immediately, I should say?
0: I, now, this is something, too, is something that's uh, like, it depends on what source you go by. Now, yeah. if I go by Paul Thompson's timeline, it was actually a citizen that gave it to a cop and then gave it to the FBI
1: and which which particular nypd intercepted it uh, if i'm if i remember correctly the, at least one of the reports it was uh, uh bernard carrick
0: right who I'm, uh, trained... I'm not sure was it
1: yeah i i believe that's the story i'm gonna have to look that up again now because right. i had the sourcing on this 10 years ago but you know it's been years oh, since i looked at it but you're, when
0: you're in that game. was
1: just another part of that story right. that seems very interesting to me
0: yeah, and that's it. And then you wonder why conspiracies happen, because then you think like, oh, wait a minute, you know, because Bernard character is a shady character to begin with, oh, yeah. so less. Um, Literal so, convicted uh, criminal, right? Yeah, sure. Um, but yeah, I mean, right after this, we're introduced to bin Laden and the uh, the Maktab al khidamat the Afghan Services Bureau, or the Office's Bureau, uh, where foreign Arabs descended to Pakistan to enter the conflict against the Soviets. And the two people that were primary uh, orchestrators of creating this were Abdullah Azam and Abdullah Nas, who is an, Ag- an Algerian rebel, who created the idea of the Bureau was funded by Bin Laden. And later, as you mentioned in the film, Bin Laden and Dr. Ahmed al-Zahiri from the Egyptian Islamic Jihad took over the Bureau and pushed out Azam. And very few people, uh, and I'm glad you brought this up in the film, very few people realized that uh, Al-Zahiri was the one who was spreading these rumors that Azam was actually an agent of Israel, an agent for the Pakistan ISI, and you know just untrustworthy. And Azam was actually pushed out. Now, along with the millions of dollars spent from the CIA's Operation Cyclone and Bin Laden's money from his father's construction company, the Saudi Bin Laden Group, and the sympathizers from Saudi Arabia, um, pouring in billions of dollars, and you have these intelligence. Aspects like from the CIA, British MI6, and ISI, and, and the Mossad from Israel, um, and you have Arab training camps like Al Masada, where we see the beginning core of Al Qaeda begin here. In which uh, Al Qaeda, as you mentioned in the film, was called the base. Was this group made as a byproduct from all of that which I just said, which was basically the CIA, the ISI? And basically created out of this money and all this funding and training of these Arab camps that brought about this coalition of foreign Arabs into this fight against the Soviets as a product of my enemy and my enemy is my friend. And could they have not seen this problem in the long run by providing arms and training to these jihadists which wage war against the West many years later
1: right right so this is this is a fundamental thing that we need to strike back against which is the blowback narrative which Mm -hmm. i understand the appeal of that narrative because it certainly points to the sort of the deeper and darker things that are behind these types of events but it's it's just well you know they're making alliances of convenience here and it Mm -hmm. blows up over there uh who could have known and that is perhaps uh persuasive if it happens once Mm. or twice but when it happens over and over and over and over again every single time throughout history do you think these people are literally so incompetent that they could never imagine that this might blow back against us one day uh I tend to think that uh, that generally speaking the incompetence theory does not hold much uh water with me um I guess it, it depends on which specific uh, uh uh event we're looking at but in this case uh clearly um i always forget his name why does i always blank on his name i i I play him towards the end of part three uh he was uh the cia i think he was the station chief um in kabul in the 80s um um that guy (laughs) milt Bearden, (laughs) milt Bearden, um being interviewed by dan rather (laughs) i think on september 12th 13th i think it was like midnight um and he's saying you know there's uh, there's all these stories of osama bin laden there's the myth of osama bin laden the great mm-hmm. freedom fighter in afghanistan but he hardly did any battle at all you know that was a myth um there's the story of uh, osama bin laden the cia agent in afghanistan but the cia had nothing to do with him mm-hmm. and you know what i could believe that that is true um there are other people who cite different things that say there was direct cia involvement with bin laden in the group at, at that time in the 80s but I don't think that's even necessarily that, that's not necessary to the story uh, in that sense um but it's what happens from that point forward the um clearly uh people like michael springman talking about the uh, uh osama bin laden's golden boys being shipped yeah. back from afghanistan uh, from afghanistan to new york you know rubber stamping the passport here at the jetta uh, visa office um it's uh, uh, the the group uh, at the Al Mosque, and um, you have Ali Muhammad coming in to train them. From taking you know weekends off from uh, a special warfare center at Fort Bragg to go train these groups, mm-hmm. and being written in the '90s even as oh, there's this CIA uh, officer who's coming to train them, and they're referring to uh, Ali Muhammad as CIA at that point. I mean, it's it's ridiculous, and so clearly there is there was use of this group and i think that that also goes into other areas of operation like what was going on in bosnia in the 90s for example that is something that i personally have not spent a lot of time researching so i don't get into that i really should i think that's a whole area that i i think deserves more attention but uh i need to find what good sources to, to cite on that one but clearly this was a group that was operational that was um, being protected nurtured fostered helped along at various places and then suddenly got out of control. Blowback, blow mm. who could
0: have imagined? <gasps> right. Uh, you know, you mentioned Ali Muhammad and he's such a, a puzzling figure in all of this. And um, it has, his connection is a much more mysteriously nefarious connection that you brought up in part two. Uh, uh, so we have Ali Mohammed, who's an Egyptian officer who offers himself to the CIA as an asset in Egypt then comes to the United States and offers himself to be an FBI asset and then enlists in the U.S. Army at Fort Bragg while swearing loyalty to bin Laden we Wahiri. And as you, you have most likely seen, the one video where he's doing uh, mm-hmm. this conference with U.S. officers in a room and he talks about how Islamic, uh, Islamic fundamentalism, there's no friendship with Israel, that we need to be at war. Um, so you have a triple agent in retrospect right out in the open. And so much is tied along with Muhammad including uh, Omar Rahman, the blind sheikh of Gamma Islamia, Dr. Ayman al zwahiri from the Egyptian Islamic Jihad, Osama bin Laden, allegedly, and the members of the Al-Farouk Mosque, and the Masjid al-Salam in New Jersey, who's tied with the blind sheikh. And all, all of this had their hands in operations in the early 90s. The 1993 World Trade Center bombing, the 1998 East Africa bombing, um, the, and, and to which Mohammed was actually charged with providing logistical information to bin Laden about it. Today, Muhammad is still in Witsak, according to Ali Sufan, and seems that we will never know or hear from him ever again. So, James, I'll ask you, who is who is Ali Muhammad?
1: Excellent question. My question is, why is that question not asked every single time that al-Qaeda mm. is not talked mm. about? Because I think you're right. Um Didn't, uh, I think uh, Peter Lance called him in Triple Cross the the deepest enigma of the Al-Qaeda story or something along those lines. At any rate, I agree. This is absolutely... I don't understand how you can not talk about Ali Mohammed and who this guy was and how he was doing what he did. And even there, you still only hit on the highlights or lowlights of that career. Mm-hmm. There were still so many other puzzling aspects of this. Uh, he at least claimed to be in the, the same unit of Egyptian army officers who assassinated Sadat, but, don't worry. He had an alibi. He was training at Fort Bragg right. at the time on an, a training officer training program, uh, and then he ends up, as you say, CIA. Uh, then gets immediately uh, gets uh, told to infiltrate this uh, this mosque in Germany. Immediately says, "Hey, I'm I'm with the CIA. They're here to infiltrate you." Um, the CIA finds out about this and, and cut all ties with him. Put him on a watch list. And somehow he ends up getting into the United States anyway. And as Peter Lance reports, well, it might have been this the mm. State Department rubber stamping that, and it was part of their, you know, helping helping terrorist program essentially. Um, uh, meeting someone on the flight over and ending up marrying her mm. a few weeks later, and uh, living in California, but then going to Fort Bragg because uh, suddenly he's in the U.S. Army now. Why not? And then leaving leaving his post at Fort Bragg taking leave for a month so he could go fight Russians in Afghanistan. Mm. Um, people, his supervisor writing up to his supervisors about this saying, what is going on here? This cannot happen. It happened, he came back with the special forces belt. Oh, yeah, I killed Russians, but nothing ever happened of it. Okay, all right, honorably discharged. It becomes an FBI informant helping Osama bin Laden move, training his personal mm. bodyguards, all of this. I mean, just insanity and then as you say disappears into a black hole seemingly forever um never sentenced question mark maybe i don't know do you know uh, uh, the, uh, uh, it was as i released part one of this back last year someone did send me a, a update and i i have to dig that up uh, there was some sort of some document filed in court with regards to ali muhammad of course it's all censored and classified mm. so you can't see what it is but some sort of change occurred in his case last year but what does that mean who knows still mm. prisoner number any way of finding him or identifying him nope Ali fan says he's talked to him um jack Clunan said he's talked to him mm. and uh, there was a a special forces uh in the u.s military who said he talked to him um, when they were going into Afghanistan and he said, uh, you know, Ali Muhammad was giving him all this incredibly great detail info about how they can go and start tracking down Osama bin oh, Laden yeah. in Afghanistan. I've heard and, this
0: before, right. Yeah,
1: but, I forget yeah. the guy's name, blabber or something like that, but um, those are the only accounts we've ever had of Ali Muhammad in the past 25 years, essentially.
0: Uh, and, you know, like I said, so much has, has originated from him. And just to go back a little bit, you 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 know you talked about this in, in the film, uh, in which the initial epoch of New York City's history with Arab fundamentalism starts with the assassination of Rabbi Amir Kahani in 1990 by El Sayed Nosser, who was a radical fundamentalist from the Al farouk Mosque in Brooklyn, uh, that was led by the blind Sheikh Omar abdel Rahman. Now, although certain historians claim this was an Al Qaeda connection, none of the members who were involved with the killing of Kahani, including the bombing of the World Trade Center in 93, or those who were involved with the landmark plot, which was a follow-up to 93 bombing, were ever part of bin Laden's organization. They never swore Bayat, which is loyalty to bin Laden. So, James, I would ask you, who were these people?
1: Uh, Well, I mean, it doesn't, here's one thing. Um, Again, as I try to stress in the documentary, the idea that Al-Qaeda is a singular and coherent organization and you're a card-carrying member or you're not is again a bit cartoonish um yes there is the by the swearing of allegiance to osama bin laden to become part of al-qaeda but there are terrorist groups of various sorts popping up all over the place that will work with each other and collaborate on various things and again as as with intelligence agencies or essentially any other line of work it's who you know more so than what organization you belong to in quotation marks right so um but as as i think you intimate there what is the common thread there well ali mohammed is one of the common threads because mm-hmm. they there yeah he's with zawahiri he's with bin laden he's with the uh, the uh, at the calverton shooting range helping to train these these guys who end up going on to 93 and the landmarks plot and all of this so there's there is some kind of common thread there and i don't see any way of looking at the ali muhammad story that doesn't point to direct complicity of intelligence agencies and what he was doing there's no way you're going to tell me that they didn't rubber stamp and Mm. guide and shepherd him along and allow him to do what he was doing and maybe there's some explanation for it you know 18 layers deep of oh well they were keeping an eye on him so that they knew what was going on or whatever i'm sure that's what if it ever came out that's what they would eventually talk about but at any rate they, they don't even mention that much no it was it was just this Al-Qaeda guy who's really good at infiltrating us. So, oh, you know, who, who could have imagined? But he seems to be the connecting thread um, between those, those groups, which, as you say, are not, this isn't Al-Qaeda, right? But who's Ali Muhammad then?
0: Yeah, there's, and there's so much uh, in regards to, you know, the mysterious nature of some of these people that just basically tend to have like a very vague background or they just tend to disappear off the face of the earth or they're locked away for 200 years
1: um Ramzi Youssef, right, Ramzi Yussef, another great big death. gigantic question mark where mm-hmm. was he born is yeah. so his mother was Khalid Sheikh Mohammed's sister really mm-hmm. do we know that how do we know that where does that information source from and then KSM's torture testimony to the 9-11 Commission report and that becomes that that's it you know hey look 25 percent of the footnotes in the 9-11 Commission report derived from torture not only sort of secondhand passive derived from torture but the 9-11 commission then asked questions to the cia to get from these people who Mm. then went in and tortured them some more to get the information that the 9-11 commission asked for literally they tortured people for that report but we're supposed to take that at face value so characters like that ksm ramsey youssef i know there's a lot written about them and there's this and that and this document and this connection but i don't think we have the full picture of who these characters really are
0: no, and we don't. And I like to uh, get a follow up to that too. Um, it, it just seems that with the CIA torturing these people, even if they told the truth, be, you still couldn't trust it because they were tortured anyway. Do you think that's the reason why they didn't to begin, to begin with? So that we can always mm. never know for sure whether it, it was true or not?
1: You know, that's, that's actually an excellent point. Um, because yeah, exactly right. Once you torture someone, It doesn't matter what they're saying whether Mm -hmm. it's truth or falsity we cannot take it at face value it puts the big question mark over exactly what they've said so it exactly right all i know is i'm not going to take torture testimony at face value
0: no right
1: then it becomes then so all of that we kind of have to discard it and well what can we prove from other information and other sources and what can we verify and triangulate with other information so it puts us back to square one or even before square one
0: yeah, this is the whole problem of 9-11 itself, is right. It's just so much vague information out there. And plus, like I always said, there's a war on two fronts. Uh, there's a war for information by the federal government and a war of disinformation from fringe theorists. And so you're you're battling on two fronts. And it's just some people just throw their hands up and just give up. Um, but going but you know, going back to, to Ali Mohammed, you know, with him training bin Laden's network in the Sudan in 92, as you mentioned in the film, the intelligence services mostly, and we talked about this before we recorded. Most notably, the NSA CIA began monitoring bin Laden uh, in, in the Sudan. And this is where later on, the NSA learned of a number uh, that bin Laden kept in contact with and located it to a house in Yemen, uh, the capital of Sanaa, owned by an associate of bin Laden, Ahmed al hadda who would become known as, the, the house would become known as the Al-Qaeda communications hub. Now, right around the same time in 1996, meanwhile, the CIA is building Alex ALEC station um which is the global hub of dedicating tracking bin Laden's network um you also have the uh the defense intelligence Agency operation able danger um uh, constructed in 96. and it just seems that in the early mid 90s uh that the CIA and the NSA had amassed an enormous amount of data regarding bin Laden and Al Qaeda many years prior to 9-11 but never responsibly act on that information for whatever one reason to another. And, you know, I would just like to pick your brain here as to speculate as to why do you think certain aspects like 98 bombing of the embassies or the coal bombing of 2000 if, you know, what are they talking about on these films? Yeah, yeah.
1: Well, we'll never know, will we? Or right. at least not for many, many years, right? Um, this is the point. And this, uh, uh, for example, read uh, Duffy and uh, uh Why the Watch dogs didn't bark
0: oh yeah that's a great book
1: um great book and it has uh i think it's drake's story about the little dossier of what the nsa knew and the what what they had that he had in his hands the days days after and was going to his supervisor trying to say hey look we we knew all of this that we have all of this information and she says i wish you would you hadn't shown me that or something along those lines um also talking in uh, openly to uh, a bunch of nsa agents saying this was a gift to the nsa 9-11 that is um so yeah again a huge glaring error in any universe resembling uh one in which justice would occur that would be the first thing we would be asking okay so you were listening to their phone calls uh, demonstrably this isn't conspiracy theorizing you right. you admit you were listening to their phone calls for five years what did you hear <laughs> can can we find out about that that might seem to be an important part of this story but again it's one that's been sealed up under so many so much secrecy and classification that I, I i very much didn't doubt that we will ever see that in our lifetime
0: yeah because it's a make or break case for you know 9-11 itself and like yeah. i said before with yeah. you before we recorded that if they were talking about 9-11 on those phones and they failed to stop it well then st- still i mean that's a blame but if they weren't talking about 9-11 hey maybe they weren't really behind it and then we got to start asking questions but and then this should by the way this should be in my opinion i, I know how you feel this should be the forefront of the 9-11 truth movement Mm. and that they completely have absconded this for yeah
1: this is yeah i see what you mean about fighting the dual front war Mm. and against mis and disinformation because yes um it's something that i've been at pains to i always try to do or usually try to do in my work which is is to hue to to the official documents and the things that we already know and the things that are openly admitted and not contested and show from within that framework why it cannot be what they're saying and i know there are people who just cannot comprehend that well you're just believing everything they say no i'm not actually right. believing everything they say but i am saying that even if we do take at face value what they're saying they are lying to you they are covering up something and those yeah the intercepts from 96 onward or was it 92 onward whatever right. uh, absolutely they either show um that yes there was a plot forming and they were listening to it and they knew all about it and it happened anyway not just nine eleven, but mm. the embassy bombings mm. other things that again we know they were listening to these people they, they had taps on every one of uh i forget which embassy plotter it was but he had like five different phones they had taps on every one of them they were listening to everything mm. he said mm. but Somehow it happened anyway. Who? Oh, well, so again, yes, things like this that we don't. Again, we don't have to go on any speculative limb. They say this. They say this, and so they have this gigantic hole in their story. Why aren't we talking about that gigantic hole in their story that shows that they are lying and covering things up?
0: You know, you talked about the bombing of the embassies in Nairobi and Tanzania, and that Bin Laden's network was initially blamed for the attacks. Uh, in the follow-up to his uh, second fatwa and the interview with that infamous interview with John Miller. Um, some months later after the interview, the bomb, the embassy's a bomb. However, there were many prior intelligence warnings regarding an upcoming attack, including um, a reputable member of the cell who's warned of an operation to bomb a U.S. Embassy, and the CIA actually interviews him and deports him. Um, and also we have the Um, the uh, Sudanese U.S. ambassador um, and uh, Prudus Bushnell, uh, you talked about in the film about how she warned about certain security lapses and basically went ignored. Uh, And this is similar to what we see with the U.S.'s coal bombing that you mentioned in the film in the year 2000, uh, where a DI operation called Able Danger, I've interviewed two of those people, uh, Anthony Shaper and Rick Kleinsman, where they warned of an Al-Qaeda attack which could have thwarted the attack to begin with. All these warnings went ignored. And it's almost like I'm preaching to the choir with you, James, because you, you know, obviously you mentioned this in the film, but you've been saying this for years. It, it, it when you said before, if it happens once, we can understand, but if it's a repetitious uh, incident, well, then we got to start questioning whether they're allowing this to happen or we have a bunch of incompetent people intelligence.
1: Yeah. And this is, uh, you know, this is another part of that two front war, I think, which is that um, one of the things that became a big cont- divide and rule of 9 uh, 11 truth, or again, uh, such a contentious term, but whatever you call it, a decade, decade and a half ago, two decades ago, was uh, lie hop versus my hop. Hmm. you know which side are you on is it let it happen on purpose or make it happen or you think it was let on happen on purpose and you're a shill and i won't ever talk to you Blah blah um which is of course nonsense because in a sense lyhop even if they just sat there and just watched it everything that was happening and then just let it happen that is making it happen there is no distinct difference there it is that is what is happening when you let something like this occur so um again i'll go back to what Bearden said and i have that quote from him at the end of the documentary where he said if osama bin laden didn't exist they would have had to invent him because exactly right this is a perfect proxy and they of course it's this third party group that's doing all this stuff and oh uh, oh there was a warning but we missed it incompetence oh well oh there we were listening to their phone calls but i guess we weren't listening that closely oh well all of these things they can just go oh, incompetence and kind of wave their hands and most people won't even think to look that far into the story but if they do it ah oh, incompetence blowback whatever i don't want to be i don't want to be a crazy conspiracy theorist i won't accuse them of letting anything happen on purpose let alone making it happen on purpose
0: you know, and, you know, let's fast forward to 9-11 because it seems that right as soon as it happened, uh, the media attention right in the passing hours, and I remember this because I was in New York when it happened, and the focus wasn- was on Osama bin Laden right away. Even though his statements over the years were about attacking the United States and that you had multiple uh, intelligence cables and warnings of bin Laden wanting to attack the United States, that's not the conspiracy. The conspiracy is... How would they have known that Bin Laden was behind it before they even did an investigation? Because it seemed like the media was rushing to blame somebody. And you mentioned this as an important part of part three of your series, is that they took, you know, it's almost like they wanted to blame somebody right off the bat before they even did an investigation. And like I said, it's not a conspiracy to blame Bin Laden, even though he wanted to attack the United States. But to rushly blame him, I thought was basically a rush to judgment and a rush to blame somebody. And, you know, you also mentioned in part three, too, uh, that it was the Taliban uh, that actually went before the media committee and basically said that they would offer Bin Laden to Bush if they just brought evidence of his complicity in attacks. And Bush's response was, we don't deal with terrorists. Well, that seemed very convenient.
1: Yeah, exactly. And in fact, at first, they're they're they were saying okay we'll we'll send him to some third third party country he has to be tried in some sort of islamic mm. court because we can't give him you know that would totally and and that was rejected but then so then they said okay no conditions we'll give him to you whatever whatever you want nope too bad too bad we we don't negotiate with terrorists exactly right so again um convenience yes the headlong rush to blame osama bin laden and to uh, again as i demonstrate in the documentary that very day numerous sources not just media speculation but um people oh we're hearing it from fbi they're looking at us on on the very day let alone within the coming days within the coming weeks and then when pressure started to mount well why don't you show us something um again they hand it off to a third party oh tony blair the uk government they've Mm -hmm. got a dossier coming out it'll explain it all guys and then when you actually read the document it is lunacy that that would have convinced anyone of anything um and even more importantly um the frank taylor classified briefing that he gave to the atlantic council in, in october of 2001 which eventually became the rubber stamping of the invasion of afghanistan the legal framework for the nato invasion um was given uh it it was eventually that document essentially was leaked on intel wire in 2009 no one noticed it at the time no one recognized what it was but it was that cable that was sent to all the state department uh, offices around the world um on the same day or the day before of the the taylor briefing and when you read through it again it it flabbergasted me because when that was, uh, I, I was in Denmark giving a talk and uh, Niels Herrick came up to me and said, have you seen, have you read this? Do you know what this is? This is the Frank Taylor report. And I, I knew of Frank Taylor in the classified briefing cause I'd covered that before, but I, I was like, oh, that's classified. We don't know about it. He's like, no, this is it. And he put in my hands and I read it front to back. And I was like, okay, we're gonna get something. We're gonna get something here. There's gonna be something. And they go through history of Al Qaeda and history of terrorist operations and history of this and history of that. And then they get to 9-11 and say, essentially, well, you know, it was a it was a plot that was done in secret that was intended to harm many people. So it was Al Qaeda. Like that is the sum total of their evidence. I really implore people to read that document for themselves to really see this is it. This is what they based their determination on um, right away or at least what they were briefing people about in you know in f- f- uh, friendly governments around the world to get them on board with the war of terror it's again it's absolutely a sickening crime especially when you think about the, the millions of lives that have been affected by that those lies in those days that steam steamrolled into the war of terror um it's uh, this should be the the biggest thing that everyone is concerned about and yet when I put together a documentary like this the most common question is why are you talking about this now
0: uh, um, and the, to me, the most important part of the film is what we see as the ripple effect of September 11th, 2001, under uh, we see the influence of the White House led by the neocon faction of Richard Perle and Douglas Fight and the Office of Special Plans, as well as the Project for New American Century, which pressured the intelligence services to find a connection between Al Qaeda and Iraq. This seemed to be a plan to destabilize the Islamic countries outside of the Gulf, which would primarily benefit the military industrial complex, Israel, and the Saudis, the Gulf. Would this be an agreeable conspiracy theory? No, it's not much of a conspiracy, because it's a matter of fact, as to these foreign policy guidelines like the Odin Yunnan plan, or the Paul Wilkowitz doctrine, or the Project for the New American Century, or the Bush doctrine, all of these didn't come a hundred percent partition, but most of it, all came to partition on the basis of the ripple effects of September 11, 2001.
1: Absolutely, and demonstrably so. And again, uh, I know it's been cited a million times. Let's cite it a million and one. The project for New American Centuries: Rebuilding America's Defenses yeah. document, talking about the New Pearl Harbor, a catalyzing catastrophic event like a New Pearl Harbor. Uh, but it wasn't just that document uh rumsfeld in his um uh is swearing in hearings or, or his interview when he was being sworn in to be defense minister talking about oh, you know, i was just reading about pearl harbor and, and uh, you know the way that america was caught off guard and what that would be like and uh, pearl harbor was being brought up over and over and over and over uh, the american psyche was definitely uh, prepared for a new pearl harbor around uh september of 2001 and then Everything that they'd been talking about and writing about for years, in the case of things like the Clean Break Document, decades, in the case of Oded, you know, suddenly coming to fruition, as you say. Here it is. Yeah, they're going to do everything that they were saying they were going to do. Um, the only thing that's surprising is that the uh, seven countries in five years list, well, they didn't get to those seven countries in those five years, but Well, a number of them certainly did end up in the crosshairs. But here's the, uh, I, again, that's so obvious that if people cannot see that by this point in 2022 i would say they're probably hopeless um i would say just get caught up to speed in what what has occurred but here's in a sense perhaps the more interesting and and kind of bigger question here with regards to that because again we can look at this and see how it would benefit these various players obviously the military industrial complex i mean obviously but things like uh, uh israel uh, okay so they want to de- destabilize they want to get rid of uh saddam hussein as a way of destabilizing an ally of bashar al-assad so that they can mm-hmm. get rid of the assad government in syria it, it, these dominoes were put in place a long time ago mm-hmm. and then they start to fall but when they start to fall what happens uh, you get rid of hussein and suddenly you have the uh, the, the sunni groups in iran the uh, sorry in iraq Which is of course the majority of the population start to gain the majority political power and start to have political influence and suddenly iran has more influence in iraq than it ever did before and and instead of keeping those two um countries apart and at war with each other as they were obviously for a very long time suddenly now it's like iran has influence in iraq and there are iranian groups that are working there that are it's a bigger threat than it was before so was that part of the plan and if it was then why mm-hmm. but if it wasn't then are again are these planners incompetent did they not understand this was how it was going to work and then you have to start asking questions about what happened in iraq during the invasion and occupation the uh, the bombing of the golden mosque and other very strange incidents the uh, the uh, the prison break um oh god i can't remember with uh, was it basra at any rate um where you had the british sas troops dressed up as muslims Mm -hmm. that were caught taken to prison and they end up busting down the prison with tanks and freeing all the prisoners including the british sas troops i I, again there's a lot of stories like that of maybe they were ginning things up there but then again why and what what how did this play into their hands and then it leads to the creation of isis which again the dia once again Mm. 100 percent. they said it, it's coming they're going to start an islamic state in in iraq and syria and then it came yeah exactly and they watched as the convoy streamed across they could have bombed it they didn't uh, this happened many many times and so again is this again is this part of the bigger bigger conspiracy or is this incompetence there's a lot of questions to do mm. with that but again i think this is something that people kind of miss miss the mm. this forest for the trees of the individual events
0: yeah for sure um, and also i I, I was quite uh, uh, I was quite exhilarated that you brought up one conspiracy regarding bin Laden because this is so often confused with so many uh, fringe elements that brought you brought some sanity into it and there's very few people I can actually name uh, der Spiegel the German article is one my co uh, uh, researcher on 11 Nelson Martin's DJ thermo is the only one and yourself now I can say that uh, regarding uh, bin Laden and the Afghan bin Laden confession tape, which was found right. on December right. 13, 2001, in which you basically brought up uh, the uh, the German Gernot Rotter, who basically mm. pointed out that, no, the tape is not fake, but instead that they missed the translations were not right. And when I read that on Der Spiegel many years ago, um, I think it was Der Spiegel or it was or it was from Rotter, um, I'm not sure, but when I saw it in your film, I was like, "Ah, oh, you know, he got, it. that's right. I, I remember this conspiracy yeah. about it.
1: Yeah, that, because it was the fat bin Laden video, right? That's yeah, not bin Laden, look how right, fat he is. And people right, are looking at one right. grainy clip from one section of it. It was a pal to NTSC conversion, which kind of takes the image and goes, well, and when right. you put it back in the proper perspective, It's Bin Laden. And especially if you actually watch the whole video, which I did, and I know I had the full hour tape at some point, it was online. I had it and I cannot find it on my hard drives anymore. And it's extremely hard to find the full thing. I I
0: have it so I could give it to you.
1: Please do, or better yet, put it up on your channel. Uh, put it up on odyssey or somewhere where it's not going to be okay. taken down and i will definitely let people know about that because that is an important mm. artifact because once you watch it and you see him walk in the room it's a six foot four lanky right, right. i mean it's osama bin laden there's no doubt about it um and i talked to i i have an interview from 2009 or something like that of the per, one of the people who wrote an article i think for muckraker report at that time about this yeah it was a pal anti se conversion thing it's not Bin Laden. but yeah the the real meat and potatoes is okay so what did he say and you have I, again i don't speak arabic i don't know i can't tell but i mm-hmm. you have people saying the pentagon translation is wrong mm-hmm. and you have the uh, the white house spokesman at the time in the documentary i played the clip of him saying you know people are saying it's not an exact translation anyway you know you get the point <laughs> essentially is what he's right. saying no, no 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 we don't get the point because these words actually make a huge difference sure calculated in advance if, if he didn't say those words then that is a conspiracy that they inserted that type of language mm-hmm. into this confession document and then there's the whole thing about the the tape itself and it's cut with the uh footage of the helicopter the crashed helicopter mm-hmm. and uh the way that it's cut it's reverse con- chronological so that probably happened first and then the, you know you're trying to figure out okay so when when did this meeting actually take place and who was there and then how did they really get it because of course, the official story is uh, the Afghan that uh, the the, uh, the um, anti Taliban forces um, in Afghanistan,
0: Northern
1: Alliance. Right. right, exactly Northern Alliance. Once they took over Kandahar, right, it was mm, where yeah. they found it. Um, they they found it in a house raid. Like, mm. oh, here's a tape. Oh, what's this? Oh, wow, it's an Osama bin Laden confession. To- Again, that's another story that I, right. being me, I just I don't take it face value.
0: Right. So. You know, James, what, what do you what do you want to get from this uh, documentary, this three part documentary? Uh, what do you hope What do you hope for? What are your goals of trying to reach? Are you trying to reach a specific audience? Or are you trying to reach a broader audience? Are you trying to persuade people from the fringe elements of the Truth Movement to come back into the reality and say, Hey, these are rational questions that we're asking, and that we need to get back on track on the more important issues regarding 9/11 and pre 9/11
1: in a sense maybe all of those things to certain degrees although I think uh what I try to do is put my work out there this is what I know this is what I put together these are my sources and this documentary like everything I do the full hyperlink transcript is there 50,000 plus words all of the video all the audio everything is there for your download um for free I'm putting it out there so that hey this is what I know about this and I don't know everything I know that I do not know everything about this story but this is what I've got and to keep to put the conversation out there for people who want to have it and let the chips fall where they may can I I I can't I mean what am I going to do I can't shake people by the lapels and tell them hey I think this is important but I can put out there what I think is important and let people come to their own conclusions about it and so that's what I'm doing and why again the question okay yeah but it's 2022 why now I guess uh, partly it is I mean partly it is honestly from a sense we still need justice for this And again, not just for 9-11, which obviously was a huge crime that took place that still the, I think the perpetrators have not been brought to justice for it, but I hesitate to say more importantly, but more importantly, as you say, the ripple effects of what came from that event Mm -hmm. and what were justified on the back of that event, the war of terror is an ongoing, but certainly for the past couple of decades, a horrible, terrible crime that has been committed. Mm -hmm. And has cost millions of lives that is a huge thing that we we cannot just say oh that was that was a decade ago stop living in the past Mm -hmm. man no no i think we still do need to know about that we also i think need to take a look at these types of these types of operations these types of manipulations these these deceptions how do they occur the better that we understand things like that The less effective they will be on us in the future because these types of operations continue to be ongoing. I think they just take different forms in different eras and it might not be the terror boogeyman at this moment. Although that's always a card up the sleeve as long as the 911 myths and the Al Qaeda myths as long as they stand it's always a card that they could pull out at any time wow look at this. Reformed Al-Qaeda, resurgent Al-Qaeda in Afghanistan, and now they have bioweapons and they're unleashing the new plague or whatever, whatever comes next. Um, I think we have to understand that history in order to defuse it, disarm it, break that magic wand that they use to wave in front of the public and try to get them to go along with their agendas.
0: What projects do you have in the future? And um, if, if any, uh, what are you doing now? uh as your next uh venture
1: well as i mentioned i did do a world war one documentary um a couple of years ago and <laughs> speaking of why are you doing this now mm. well on the 100th anniversary of the armistice i uh, released uh, my world war one conspiracy documentary um it's at corporatereportcom wwi um and that was a similarly i think well not not as big as my false flags documentary that's a five plus hour documentary It's the far by far the biggest thing I've ever done but it was a couple of hours altogether, and it ended with a to be continued dot 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 so I will be continuing that series obviously from that point in 1918 an armistice but the story continues it's a grander geopolitical story and perhaps I guess false flags kind of uh as we get further and further into that story it does play a part in it obviously the geopolitical wrangling of the past couple of decades has been dominated by that war of terror myth which plays an important part of it but i'm looking specifically at the geopolitical relations the formation of pax americana post-world war ii and whatever is coming next um post-world war three question mark so that's kind of where where i'm trying to redirect my attention now it's i'm just trying to recover from (laughs) finishing false flags to be honest because that was a was a lot of work
0: yeah then inexplicably a lot of detail went into it but james you know it it was unfortunate because i know you had such a huge channel on youtube and i was very shocked to see it deleted um where can people find your work now
1: uh the best place to go is CorbettReport.com, c-o-r-b-e-t-t report.com and from there you can find, well, I, I post everything directly to my site, and even the videos themselves you can download directly from my server. So even if I got scrubbed from every social media platform on the planet, it would still be there at corporatereport.com. But from there, you can find links to all of my different social media places that I do post. Uh, I tend to use Odyssey the most, I think it's one of the most convenient, but I also post to archive.org, I post to BitChute, I post to um, uh, Substack now, uh, and I've just started a rockfin channel and a rumble channel i don't necessarily like rumble i think i have misgivings about it as a platform and peter Thiel's investment in it and what have you but Mm. at any rate for the time being i will use it as another outlet if people are there i will get the word out to people there so that's what i'm going to continue doing um hey I wasn't on youtube because i thought it was a great corporation or something i was on youtube because that's where i could reach Mm. millions of people and i did i had 100 whatever 190 million views or something by the time i got scrubbed so you know, it's obviously, I will probably never have another million plus view documentary, but at least at this point, I know that the people who are there are there because they're really looking for this information. So I'm going to try to give them the most action-packed and important information that I can.
0: James Corbett from the Corbett Report. The series is False Flags, the Secret History of Al-Qaeda. Thank you very much for joining us today, James.
1: Thank you for having me on. I hope we can talk again in the future.
0: Sure.